0: You do not do any advertising for your services. You don't use a manufacturer's rep, correct? No social media?
1: Nope, none. We have a single page website. That's it. Okay. And I'm trying to think if I ever even got any work that I got several quotes out of that. But other than that, no. It's all word of mouth and we have plenty of work. It's just having I mean, the right connections. <laughs>
0: This is SWARFCAST. I'm Noah Grath. Our guest on today's show is Jay Souter, owner of Souter Machine in Plymouth, Ohio. Souter makes a variety of precision components, such as casings for mechanical pocket watches and wheel cylinders for Amish horse-drawn buggies. The company has no sales team, nor a social media presence, yet it still has a wide and profitable customer base that continues to grow through great networking. Today's podcast is brought to you by Graf Pinkert. Looking for a screw machine, rotary transfer machine, or CNC machine? Graf Pinkert's got you covered. When you're buying any used machine, you're taking a risk. So it's important to buy from someone who knows their stuff and who is going to give you straight information about what you're buying. Graf Pinkert is a family-owned firm that's been dedicated to selling great machine tools to the turn parts industry for 75 years. It specializes in the top multi-spindle brands, including Index, Schutte, Gildemeister, Tornos, ZPS, Acme, and Wickman. I am very honored to be with Jay Souter, CEO and owner of Souter Machine. Welcome to the show, Jay.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate you reaching out. Thank you. And uh we've done this before and I really enjoy it.
0: Exactly. I, I should have said, welcome back to the show. <laughs> Jay is one of I mean, I love all the guests, but he's one of my faves just because no well, many reasons. He's he's just personable and and just has a great interesting story. So first of all, just to get started, why don't you tell us a little bit about Souter Machine and then we'll get a little bit about you.
1: Sure, sure. Well, dad started the business back in 1982. It actually, it was his brother, two of his brothers uh, started the business. And well, actually, I should go further back because it's dad's business was third generation machinist. Uh, I would be fourth generation. Wow. So it goes, yeah, great, great grandfather. He had a machine shop and his son and then my dad. Dad had worked in that shop and then he went off and started his own business in 82. It was his two brothers in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. And then he moved to Ohio by himself and continued working by himself until, well, my brother was 14. My oldest brother was 14 years old when we moved out here. So he helped out in the shop, and then uh, he left the business to attend college. He had his own dream to follow, so he did that. And then in 2009, I was 18, 19 years old, and I started taking interest in the business. And Dad always hated office work. Uh, with the, he struggled with dyslexia, and but he was he's a super genius as far as mechanical engineering and figuring stuff out. So he does, it and he's still here. So I started taking interest. We had a 3000 square foot facility. How old did you say you are right now? I'm 33. Last time I checked.
0: 33. Yep. Okay.
1: So in, so 2009 I started taking interest and then, um, basically the business was preset, ready to go. Like we had a decent customer base. The only problem was dad wasn't charging enough. He wouldn't do the math. He wouldn't do cycle times. He would just look at it and say, you know, he would he would get material pricing, but that's about as far as it went. He, you know, he didn't push a lot of pencils. And he would just kind of put a price on it and wing it. So,
0: you know, this show is part of a season we're doing about getting work. And your company, uh, you have an interesting background. And that influences some of the type of work that you go after. For people that haven't heard the other podcast we did with Jay, Jay is a Mennonite background. And I think we need a little clarity for the people that don't know that much. What is the connection between Mennonites and, and Amish people?
1: Well, it, it, anytime that you need to stop me, because I, I tend to go down a rabbit hole and then you have to dig me back out. So feel free to stop me anytime. But okay. uh, Mennonite Amish, Mennonite Amish, we both we were what they call, or I grew up as Old Order Mennonite which is we, dri- we drove horse and buggy. I grew up driving horse and buggy. In fact, um, I didn't get my license until 2015. Uh, six years ago, I started driving a vehicle. But the Amish are more conservative. And uh, again, there's a little bit, like there's some that are quite liberal. They have smartphones and, and that type of thing. But as a whole, when somebody thinks of Amish, uh, they think of horse and buggy and conservative lifestyle, no telephone, no television, no internet, that type of thing. Mm-hmm. The Mennonite, old order Mennonite is kind of the same way, except they were a little bit more liberal. We had telephones in our houses. Uh, we had electricity off the grid versus Amish do not. And Mennonites don't have beards. Amish do, their dress is more conservative. Ours is a little bit more liberal. To a trained eye, there's, a I mean, to us, there's a huge difference did one come out of did one community come from the other? Uh, the, the Amish went off of the Mennonites in the 1700s, I believe.
0: So it was the Mennonites first, and then they, the people were like, yeah, you know, I think we're gonna we're, they, they sort of just deviated into another another stream.
1: Well, it originated from Menna Simons, if you go all the way back to the 1400s. Whoa. Is where, the, where, is where the Mennonite name, or the, where the Mennonite, mental Simons, was the original, uh, how you, you might, but even if you go, like, there's a lot of churches throughout the United States that call themselves Mennonites, but to us, they would seem like what we call English people. There's a lot of different types of Mennonites, but what I'm going back to is the Old Order Mennonites.
0: So if you're not English people, then what are you? If you're are you Dutch, is that what they...
1: Like our neighbors or people that live in the town, we call, we just call them English people. It's just a way of separating the two. But so, so that's where some of our customers came from, is from within the Mennonite or Amish community.
0: That is very interesting.
1: One of the things that we do is uh, we designed a hydraulic brake system for the Amish and Mennonite carriages. They already had brakes on their carriages, but they they were importing them from China. They were cast iron rear cylinders, and we developed a aluminum wheel cylinder that is hard coat anodized. It has a rock weld like 55 or 60. It's it's, it's very water resistant, works very well. Um, We also have a master cylinder that we developed, and those really went well. We started in 2012. Started making those, and since then, uh, we have a hundred and forty thousand wheel cylinders out. Wow! And actually, our horizontal mills sitting out there carving away at another order of thirty five hundred. So,
0: and what do you make them on? What kind of machines?
1: Uh, it's an OKK um, five hundred millimeter pallet horizontal machining center uh, with a sixty tool carousel. Actually, we do have three other mills, but that's the only horizontal we have.
0: And you make how much of the wheel, the entire wheel?
1: No, this is just the wheel cylinder. It's two pistons.
0: Wheel cylinder.
1: Yep. It's, a, it's, it's where your hydraulic fluid goes in, and it pushes the pistons out, and the pistons push against the brake shoes, and the brake shoes go against the brake drum.
0: But they put hydraulic fluid in a wagon wheel for horse and buggy wagon?
1: The original wheel cylinder that they were using came off of a 1941 light-duty Ford truck. So they were still using that original casting while they were getting an imported from China. It was a knockoff, but still all the same. They just basically copied a wheel cylinder off of a vehicle and put them on the carriages.
0: And that became like sort of just standard issue. Like that's right. And they don't want, they don't want to change that because it's almost like tradition.
1: Yeah. They're now there's quite a few, that are using disc brakes but the disc brakes with the calibers they're more exposed to elements the way that they're set up on on the on the wheel and they don't have quite the success and plus they're probably about double the price they're they're considerably more expensive but then again the young guys that you know want something different that nobody else has and looks cool you know
0: <laughs>
1: you're to have a sporty buggy so you put disc brakes on them
0: Okay, so this is obviously not the only thing you make. You do not do any advertising for your services. You don't use a manufacturer's rep, correct? No social media?
1: Nope, none. We have a single page website, that's it. Okay. And I'm trying to think if I ever even got any work that, I got several quotes out of that. But other than that, no. It's all word of mouth and we have plenty of work. It's just... I mean the right connections,
0: right? So part of the reason that you have these connections is your niche, um, your, your connection within the Amish or the Mennonite community. Uh, another product you're making is pocket watch
1: shells. Yes. We developed it in September of last year and the first batch of a thousand pieces we shipped out in January.
0: So tell us about how that went down and explain why they're making pocket watches.
1: That, that's a real interesting one. Um, some very conservative Amish groups don't allow digital pocket watches that's powered by a battery. So they are allowed to have mechanical wind up pocket watches
0: and they don't want to wear a regular nobody wants to wear a regular watch because that's you don't do that
1: yeah that's you don't you don't wear you don't wear a wrist watch no so and then this is a pocket watch this is the one you know the if you think of you know the good old railroad pocket watch tied with a string around the uh around the bow so he was importing the casings from china and the quality wasn't the best and he could no longer get the certain type of casing that he wanted so he went on a search and he found one of our customers um, in holmes county ohio that has a machine shop that we do their precision work for them because they don't have cnc equipment uh, actually they do have a six spindle they do have a six spin, a spindle acme uh, all mechanical run so they do have some machining centers but they don't have the precision that we do or the production in some of the fine detail but anyway going back to watches this guy from Northern wisconsin contacted even heat manufacturing in holmes county ohio he wrote him a letter asking if he knows of anybody that has the capability to do what he needs and he was like yeah sure we can uh, and he put him in contact with us and he came down and visited us. Uh, I think it was like two weeks later, he made the trek down here from Wisconsin to look at our shop and to show what he wanted. And we said, sure, we can do that. So we made him some prototypes and he was happy with them. And I gave him quotes on quantities of 1,000, 2,500, and 5,000. And he immediately ordered 5,000, <laughs> just like, boom. I was like, whoa, this is crazy because that's gonna keep our index C65 busy four months out of the year. Uh, I did give him a blanket option. I said, if he takes 5,000, he doesn't have to take them all at once. He can spread it out over like a nine month period. He was happy about that. That I was too, because I didn't want to tie our machine four months straight out of the gate. So we shipped the first thousand and now he already wanted the second thousand. And it's like, where are these things all going? Um, I've seen several advertisements and uh, publications that are that, I mean, you could get them. PCB is one of them. Plain Community Business Exchange is primarily kind of sent out to Amish and Mennonite businesses, or it's not just for business, but for people to read their stories and stuff. But for the most part, it's a huge marketing thing um, under the Amish. Interesting. And that's where that's where those watches get advertised, and obviously they use a lot of them. So there you go, word of mouth and having a happy customer, because even Heat has been a customer of ours since uh, like 2003. There again, we make the gas valve that go in their uh, butane-fired clothing irons. And we also make the, the filler valve that fills the, the large butane tank where you have an aerosol can with the butane.
0: So you have a tremendous network of people connected to the Amish or Mennonite community. You're, you're sort of blessed with this connection, would you say?
1: Yes, absolutely. Because they're great people to work for and you generally, they pay well uh, in a timely fashion. They also, I mean, they like to take advantage of our 2% uh, discount if they pay within 10 days or or net 30. I
0: thought you were gonna say a 2% discount for Amish people and I was gonna be like, oh, it's not cool.
1: No, no, that's for everybody, including including the steel companies and Parker Hannifin and all those that we work for. Um, Everybody gets a two percent
0: two percent discount if they pay early. You said
1: if you pay if you pay in ten days, you get a two percent discount. Or it's net thirty is our standard. But if you want a bonus of two percent, right, it's ten days. Ninety percent of our customers take that. So
0: okay, so it sounds like you're having no trouble finding new customers, but. What can people learn from you who aren't Amish, who aren't in this community? This is a tactic that can be used for, for other groups, or or do you think this is the Amish group sort of lends itself to this based on their custom, et cetera?
1: Kind of, but I see it in the same in other businesses. I mean, 20% of our business goes to a steel company in Cleveland, Ohio. They, they come to us with parts from their customers basically their customer comes to them and says hey we can't make this part or do you know somebody that can do this and they're like oh sure and they and they forward it to us but we we always sell through them it makes it it makes it really nice like the steel company supplies the material they ship it here we machine it and ship it back to them and they ship it to their customer that's how the work goes for Parker Hannifin and the Allison Transmission and Fairfield Manufacturing out in uh, Lafayette Indiana Uh, we make huge shafts for air conditioning. They're three and a half inch diameter by 28 inch long drive shaft for an air conditioner. So it must be a really, really, really big air conditioner, but they want quantities of 5,000 per year. But so far we haven't seen those numbers. That's what they initially told me when I quoted it, but we're like doing 2,500 a year. Are
0: you quoting tons of work constantly?
1: Yes, absolutely. And I turn stuff down because I just, I would rather not quote it than quote it and not deliver. I mean, that's just not the way that we operate. Sure. I would much rather just, you know, not have them dissatisfied by customer service. So, and and most of people are understandable in that. If we say, hey, look, we just can't, we just can't do it. Because right now, over last year, last year was our biggest year. I mean, it was, of course, our biggest year by like five percentage points. Incredible. If we keep going the rate we are, we're going to be 50% over last year. These first four months, actually 52% over last year, if we keep going the rate that we are. So I'm not sure when it's going to stop. Actually, it might stop once we run once everybody runs out of steel because it's going crazy.
0: Interesting. So you, you have to keep upping your own game and getting more efficient just so you can keep up with the work.
1: Yeah. If you're making 3,600 parts and you save one second, you saved an hour. So we're very adamant about that. You push a tool, If you're doing a new job, you push the tool until it breaks, and then, you know, your threshold, you back off a little bit, and you run it, right? Mm -hmm. So, every machine, like, if we do a new part, I always go out and watch it in the first processes, and then, you know, if everything seems to be running good, and then I just start cranking up the feed rates until we've kind of, this is good.
0: So I don't know if you can answer this question. You came into a company, it already had some customers, and it seems like you know, one customer kind of snowballs onto another customer. Would you say that's the case? By having a few good customers, that leads to more customers. It, I mean, the connection within a community helps as well. What would you do if you were starting from scratch? If you were a company just without any customers at the beginning, you had some good machines, you had some talent. What would you advise somebody to do? Find a niche, find a group of people uh, with similar background?
1: No, not necessarily. I would. I mean, it's, it's a tough question and it's something I don't have experience with, but from what I would see, the best thing is if you can find somebody that kind of sources work for you. I've, I've dabbled on um, manufacturing.com. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that website or not.
0: Is that the same as MF, is that the same as MFG.com?
1: Yes, yes.
0: I'm trying to interview the guy from there. I, I just contacted him today.
1: <laughs> well, he, he should interview you. I mean, they have a great website and it's like, if you find several good customers on there, like, and just kind of- build up- He should interview me
0: or I should interview him?
1: <laughs> either way
0: <laughs> you just said he should interview me and i was like really um maybe it's a freudian slip okay so before i interrupted you you were saying that that's an interesting way to
1: start i would i would if i would have you know bought a mill and a lathe and and you're dabbling a little bit and you want to grow and you don't really have any connections i would i would recommend going that route but if you have connections yeah, like I said, it, it, that's a tough question for me. With with, but that's an in, that's a good answer.
0: So so you're saying that's the key is get one and then have it lead and snowball and spiderweb to others. But that's a good answer to start there.
1: Yeah, and don't get super focused on on trying to win one or all, and don't price yourself out. Like you have to you have to quote what it's going to take to make the part like, don't undersell yourself. If you lose some business, that's fine. I mean, I know back when I took over or started taking interest in the business, I didn't take the business Dad didn't hand the business over until 2017. But back when I started quoting stuff and do, pushing numbers, I had to triple some of the prices for our customers that were buying since the eighties from dad. And they were not really happy about it. And I said, look, I said, we have to charge this. I said we can't. We can't lose money on a job. I'm like, you're free to go somewhere else and find somebody else to make them. If if they can make them cheaper and better than us, I'm game for it. Go for it. I, I, I'm not. I'm not going to hold you back. And they did that. Well, the funny part was, within a year they were back. They placed the purchase order without a price, without asking for an RFQ, They just sent a PO and, and they were like, just make him. And it was like, okay.
0: Did they say, did they do it like that? Because they, you had already priced it before to them. And that's why they,
1: well, they just, they just, the, the purchase order showed $0. They just sent the PO the, by fax machine. And they were just like, make him. And like, well, I would send the price back and say, this is what they're going to be. And they're like, cool, make him. And like, and, and the one was, like, you know, we found out that if we get parts from solder machine, we can put them on the shelf, and we don't have to worry about them. We know they're right, and and that's what counts. Because they, I guess they spend much. and that's that's another thing is if you do something, do it right and make it right. And that's why I'm saying is keep your prices where you're comfortable, and you can do the job. If you can't do it for that, find something else to do. Like find your niche. Whatever it may be, turning large parts, making small parts. You have to charge what your overhead and what you're going to be able to do it comfortably. And all the pricing that I do now is guesstimation. And for the most part, I, would, I have about a 90, around a 90% accuracy rate.
0: Yeah, how do you guesstimation? Is that even a word, guesstimate? I don't know. <laughs> I use it. It works for me. What's the difference between estimate and guesstimate?
1: Well, guesstimate comes back and bites you.
0: <laughs> uh, that's probably, you're saying it's just a little bit, it's a little bit more pulling it out of your behind guesstimate. Pretty much. It's it's tricky. Isn't that
1: dangerous? It can be, but if you have a good relationship with your customer and you figure out, hey, we can't, you know, and if you, you sh- if you shoot too low, it, it, that's a tricky dance to do with a customer. The next time they order the parts, they're going to be expecting the same price.
0: So why do that? Why don't you just calculate it you know beforehand rather than guesstimate?
1: You mean set up a machine and actually run a cycle because that can greatly vary. I mean uh, I, I
0: see what you're saying. I see what you're saying. You have to come up with some you know margin for error because you yeah, that's the alternative to actually run it. I understand now.
1: Because my question is, how do other people do it if they don't do it that way? You, it's always kind of a shot in the dark.
0: You can do... Unless you've done something similar.
1: Yes. that's. I mean, we produce somewhere around 800 to 1,000 different parts across the spectrum. So, yes, we do have a lot of similarities, but it's still... like If you get into something tricky, that can be a challenge.
0: So, you always come in with the price, or do you sometimes or does the customer come in with the price? Uh
1: sometimes they come in with the price or sometimes they come in with a target price, which is very handy. But it it also if they're getting it somewhere imported or the quality is less than ours, that can be really tricky. When we say, "Hey, look, our pers- our, our products going to look a lot nicer and it's going to be a lot more precise than what you're getting." But if that doesn't matter to them, then we can't compete. Yeah you know they can import it for $3.50 and our price is going to be 4.50 or 5.50 then we then it's just like well sorry we we can't we can't compete and usually they're understandable with that
0: what do you do what do you do and this can be off the record if you want I mean what do you do if you know you can make a part for a dollar and the guy comes in and he says my target is $2 what do you say to them Do you, do you smile to yourself and go, hi, I got this index, C 65. He's never even seen anything like this. I'm just going to crush it. (laughs) Or do you try to find somewhere in the middle? I don't know. It's just an an interesting, um, dilemma because in the long run, it may not suit you to take the big margin.
1: That, that, that's a very good point. Usually in the, in that scenario, I would do it for like buck 75. I would save him some money, make him feel good and make him a good part and just do it.
0: Right. Make a nice margin,
1: but not, but don't gouge. Yeah. In the long run, when you figure out how to do the part for 50 cents, I generally don't pass that along unless I know I have to like knowing competition or it all depends on the customer. If I know he's never going to look around and he's in is locked in and I can do it faster. I'm definitely going to keep those savings. But once in a while I will pass along savings just because it makes your customer, it, it ties them in harder to you. Like if he can trust you that you're not going to rip them off, that goes a very long way.
0: But do you ever think to yourself, do you ever think to yourself, well, heck my talents better than his, than than the other guy I'm smarter than them and bought like this awesome German machine. Uh, you know, my, my business sense is better than them. Why shouldn't I, nobody else is going to be able to do this. So doesn't that have value? You know, like just, just because I was able to, you know, smartly get a machine for a fraction of the cost that somebody else would get it for. I don't know. I'm just, these are just like the the yings and the yangs that go through my head,
1: you know? Well, we're constantly reinvesting in equipment. Like, as soon as I have free cash available, I pump it back in, buying better equipment, be it measuring tools, and also keeping your employees happy. That's, that's a huge thing. If you have a good employee, pay him enough that he can't afford to quit. Interesting. I mean, <laughs> unless, it, it, I mean, it's, it's just treat your employees well and they'll treat you well. Uh, is it is a very good line. I mean, it's just, it, it what goes around comes around. Just take take care of what you want. Invest in good equipment. Keep your prices where you can do comfortably, but not gouge. Where if you if the customer finds out that you were gouging them,
0: yeah, that's bad for the long game because it seems like that's part of your that's one of your main assets is your your word of mouth, your goodwill, your networking. So even if you feel like your price is just um, even if they're getting a great deal and you're getting a great deal, if it doesn't seem like a good deal to everybody, then it's not in your best interest to, to take such a huge margin. It sounds like.
1: Yep. And and another thing is, is doing good work. I mean, it's so funny. Like we have this shop software that we bought the other year. It's called E2 shop software and i i was just floored at how that software is built around reworking like that's something we almost never do like maybe once a year if that, sometimes reworking like it, it, making bad parts and then having the customer ship them back and you have to fix them up
0: <laughs> yeah i i see it's not even re, it's not relevant to you
1: no it's just like and that's where, that's where some of our customers are coming from is like, they know if they get, if they, even sometimes they are paying a premium that you get what you pay for. And just the same way with buying German machines. They're, they're awesome. They do well. And Japanese machines are, are, are good machines too.
0: Basically if they're a part of the ax the Axis powers, they're good. Yeah. So. <laughs> DMG, DMG Mori. Um, So another thing that I find interesting about you, Jay, is that you like to buy equipment before you have a job. Is that partly because you just, you know, value so well, when you buy a machine, you know that you're getting a great deal. So it's less, it's less of a, it's less scary to do that. But why do you like to buy equipment first?
1: Well, that's kind of a tough question for me because I like to, when I see a good, a good buy,
0: we've given you good buys
1: and you didn't, and you didn't buy from
0: <laughs> us. <laughs>
1: <laughs> nice try. I got. I mean, the most that we ever paid for a machine was $140,000. And that was that trial that we just recently bought. Um, uh, but most of our stuff would you, would you have bought, would you have bought ours for that? Uh, no, because that one had a lot more wear. there. would have sold it to <laughs> <laughs> Okay, go on. The next machine that's going to get replaced is our Multiplex 420. And we'll be keeping the Multiplex 630. And we'll be replacing that one with a possibly a new Multiplex. That would be our very first new purchase.
0: And why on earth would you purchase something new?
1: <laughs> because the type of work that Parker job that we do... They're looking into getting us to do more of the work right now. We're just doing the simple, basic turning. And now they're looking for us to complete that part and to be able to, to keep up with production and to be able to do that with probing. Actually I would be induction hardening and grinding right in the machining center.
0: You need the dream machine that's customized for your part.
1: Pretty much. Yeah.
0: So isn't that dangerous to buy a machine just for that job? Or do you feel like you'll be able to repurpose it if you need to later?
1: We would be able to repurpose the machine. Uh, that's one thing if for some reason we would lose that job, but us losing that, I know how slow that company moves from when we first made our first sample parts until we were in production was two years. And then they made a slight change on the part and it took almost a year to get that change on a print from engineering approval so that's the beauty of working for large corporations. If you can get them to pay, that's another thing. The company, I, I maybe the threatening is not the right term, but basically they were like, well, if you don't, you know, we might find somebody else to do it. And I was like, fine, we're not a financial institute. Like you're free to go and find somebody else to be your financial institute, but we need you to pay in 30 days because we're not a bank. We can't be strung out 60 or 90 days. And the, there again, the quality of our work. They knew that after twenty-seven thousand parts shipped in forty-eight months time period, you can we can count on our one hand how many rejected parts we had. What is something?
0: What, <laughs> what's something you learned last week? Something I learned last week. Wow. About anything? Come on, you learned you learned plenty just from talking to me on the phone last week. I'm sure.
1: i learned plenty from you i mean (laughs) actually i uh i figured out i can draw out a solid piece of rod cheaper than uh using tubing so i i I chalk that one up as learning something because tubing is expensive i got a new job that we just quoted and the customer liked the price and they liked our samples so he placed an order for fifteen thousand parts right off the bat so 7,500 of them, they want as soon as possible. The next, next 7,500 pieces they went in August. So they were using tubing, and I used solid steel and drilled it out uh, with a Sumo Champ drill. It takes about six seconds to drill it, but the, the material cost is about 60 cents difference. So I can drill a hole a lot faster than, uh, than using tubing. So. And of course, some of you podcast listeners probably might have already known that, but I'll chalk that up with something new. Very cool. There you go. Live and learn, crash and burn. That's my philosophy. If the tool doesn't break, you're not pushing it hard enough. What's your favorite sound? My favorite sound is chips being produced in a machining center when you're doing the 30 thousands per rev and a seven sixteenth depth of cut in D six tool steel. That's an awesome sound. It sounds like you're dumping a silverware chest into the chip conveyor. It's really cool.
0: I thank you so much, Jay, and can't wait to have you on the show again sometime soon. From today's machining world, this is Swarfcast. If you like this podcast, please subscribe to the show on your favorite app and give us a five-star rating and a review. And don't forget to tell your friends about it. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and todaysmachiningworld.com to join our mailing list, read episode summaries, and watch extended interview videos. I'm Noah Graff. My occasional co-host is Lloyd Graff. Our managing editor is Ridgely Dunn. Our audio engineer is Patricio Garcia. For information on advertising or to submit an idea for a future podcast, follow the contact information at todaysmachiningworld.com.